0: Almighty Father, we thank you for this morning that you've given us to dive deep into your word and to see your gospel shine through the person of Joseph and his story and his family. So Lord, we ask that the truth of your word would be spoken this morning and the truth of your word alone be remembered. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. How does one apologize? How do you show true remorse for doing something wrong? What is it that makes an apology genuine? In our media age today and its 24-hour news cycle, we're always used to seeing the latest celebrity or Fortune 500 company issuing its public apology for the thing that it's done, said, tweeted. And by now, if you've heard one apology in this space, you've heard them all. Celebrities will find the most humble-looking section of their Beverly Hills mansion to record their heartfelt plea to their fans. (laughs) CEOs and college presidents will state it on the record that they affirm the visions and values of their prestigious institution. But most of these tend to fall flat on the ears of their audience. Somehow we know that these pleas for social mercy come from a place of self-preservation and not true remorse. It's on the heart level that we know that these apologies aren't genuine. For everyday people like you and me, it can be much of the same. As children, when we do something wrong, our parents do their best to teach us to apologize. When we steal our siblings' toys, they grab us by the hand, they chastise us, and then they march us to our brother or sister and say, apologize now, say you're sorry. But children are smarter than we think. We knew as kids that we apologized not so much because we felt bad about our actions, although we might, but because we knew that our parents were trying to teach and tell us the right thing to do. And the punishment for refusing to apologize might just be worse than what you're already enduring. At the same time as kids, many of us are taught to forgive in a similar way. We accept the apologies of our siblings, not because we truly forgive them, although we might, but because we know that it's the right thing to do in the moment. And the punishment for refusing to forgive might just be worse than the punishment that our brother or sister is getting. So it goes both ways. I do think at times that we can see in children genuine moments of remorse and repentance. But for many of us, it's as we grow up into adults that we get better at both of these things. I have experienced this several times in my relationship with my wife when I have sinned against her with careless words or actions of passive aggression, and I can see immediately in her eyes the way that I've hurt her, instantly there's a moment of regret that overtakes my soul. At that moment, my primary concern isn't to come out on top. It's not to be proven right in the argument that's sure to follow. It's to be reconciled wholly and truly. I apologize not because I'm trying to escape some punishment like sleeping on the couch for the night, (laughs) but because I long to be in that state of mutual grace and love with my wife. At that time, I long to hear those sweet words of reconciliation, the I forgive you that follows my I'm sorry. Reconciliation, the restoring of relationships, this is one of the words that could sum up the entirety of the Bible. The whole story is about the reconciliation of the relationship between humans and God. Genesis is a book that begins on both of these th- on this theme. In the garden, we begin in a right relationship with God. But when Adam and Eve sinned and were expelled from the garden, that's when the grand play of reconciliation begins. What we call salvation history starts there. Likewise, it's no coincidence that the story of Joseph just so happens to be the last story in Genesis. As we see in today's lesson near the end of his story, we get an image of repentance and reconciliation that illustrates in such a beautiful way how God longs for us to be reconciled to him. The tender moment between Joseph and his brother Judah perfectly shows us how we ought to bring ourselves before the Lord as sinners. But also, and more importantly, I think, It points forward to what Christ has done for us on the cross to achieve a more perfect and everlasting reconciliation. Now, to understand this moment, we better need to put ourselves in Joseph's sandals. We've covered a lot of ground in the last couple of weeks. We're going from chapters 37 all the way to the end. Um, And a lot's happened. We've skipped some chapters. But just trying to understand the mind of Joseph leading up to the moment this morning... At the age of 17, his brothers seek to kill him because of his prophetic dreams. His brother Reuben saves him from this fate, but unfortunately, his kindness is not all that it seems. Because then he recommends, well, don't kill him, just throw him in a pit. Well, what's Reuben doing? Maybe he's trying to serve himself in an act of mercy on his own conscience. Or maybe he's hoping that he can come back later and pull Joseph out and earn favor with his father. In the end, though, it's useless because it's the brother brother Judah who is the one who comes up with the idea to sell Joseph into slavery. Joseph spends the next 20 years in Egypt. During all this time, we never get a glimpse into the mind of Joseph and how he might still feel about his brothers. Does he hate them, or does he love them deep down, still? Does he fear them, or would he pour out his newfound power and wrath upon them. If he saw them now, would he show mercy or judgment? We don't know much about how Joseph may have processed his past, but it seems reasonable that he would have thought about it from time to time, while in Potiphar's house, while in prison, while at the right hand of Pharaoh. But it isn't until he gets to be at the right hand of Pharaoh, ruling over his storehouses, that we see that he names his first child Manasseh, which means God has made me forget. Ironically, though, this does show us that Joseph is still thinking about his past. Maybe he's achieved some kind of peace with it, but it's still heavily on his mind. And this is helpful to understand why Joseph does the things that he does when his brothers finally show up in Egypt. When his brothers arrive in Egypt to buy grain to bring it back to their father, Joseph, upon seeing his brothers might be at peace as he eventually tells them in verse 5 of chapter 45 and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here but joseph has been fooled once before he cannot be sure that his brothers even now if they recognized him would still seek to take his life especially since joseph has risen to such a high position of power seemingly beginning to fulfill some of the prophetic dreams that he had As we learned last week, Gene showed us that Joseph's harsh and even deceptive treatment of his brothers worked for the purpose of awakening their conscience to their sin. It also serves to allow Joseph to peek into their minds for himself and to determine if his brothers still wish any ill will upon him. When the brothers first visit Egypt in chapter 42, Joseph imprisons them, And when he frees them three days later, he commands them not to return to Egypt unless they bring their youngest brother, Benjamin, with them. At this time, he overhears them talking to each other, and they say in their own native language, in verse 21, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, speaking of Joseph, in that we saw the distress of his soul, and when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. See, here's where Joseph begins to see what he had hoped to see all along, to see his brothers recognizing and confessing their sin to one another. Now, it's not yet full repentance, but it's enough to make Joseph weep. It's enough to make him weep so much that he has to leave the room or else he's going to give himself away too early. It's in our lesson today, though, that Joseph witnesses the fullness of his brother's repentance in the person of his brother Judah. After some time, the family has run low on food again, and so Jacob goes to his sons, and he sends them once again back to Egypt for more grain. With Jacob's reluctant blessing, they bring Benjamin along with them, according to the judgment of Joseph the last time they saw him. And once again, Joseph dines with his brothers, but again he keeps his identity a secret. As his brothers go to leave with the grain in hand, he d- instructs one of his servants to put his chalice in, one of th- in Benjamin's bag. And so when the brothers go to leave, they're stopped on the way out, and they're accused of theft. So once again, they're brought back into Joseph's house and thrown at his feet. And this is where Joseph declares that Benjamin and Benjamin alone, who's his only full-blooded brother, will stay. And all the other brothers can go back to Canaan. Now this is terrible news for the brothers, because the brothers know what their father said— that if Benjamin doesn't come back, Jacob's going to lose the will to live. But this is the moment that something unexpected happens. Judah, the very brother who in the beginning of this story in chapter 37 had the idea to sell Joseph into slavery, makes a profound gesture of repentance. He throws himself before Joseph on the ground and he says, Take me, for our father will die if Benjamin does not return home to him. It is this monumental act of sacrificial love that convinces Joseph that his brothers truly are sorry for what they've done. There's no greater apology that Judah could offer to Joseph at this moment. As we heard in our gospel lesson this morning, as Jesus says, there's no greater love than this than one can give up his life for his friend. In response to this, Joseph's soul is immediately overwhelmed by a deep desire to be reconciled with his brothers. He sends his servants away, and with a loud voice, he cries out, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? Naturally, the brothers are shocked at this revelation. They're at a loss for words. Joseph immediately seeks to calm them by expounding upon the providence of God that's been working in his life while he's been in Egypt. And now Joseph, fully reconciled to his repentant brothers, embraces them and weeps with them. The covenant family is restored. The promise of Abraham is protected because Joseph, as ruler's right-hand man in charge of all his storehouses, can ensure that their family can live through the famine. The chosen people will continue. He sends for Jacob and the rest of the family to live in Egypt. And in this way, Joseph kind of mediates life to his family, and he does it abundantly. Friends, this is the gospel according to Joseph. This moment of reconciliation is an icon. It's an example that points towards the heavenly truth of how our relationship with God works. If Joseph, an imperfect man who loves imperfectly, can be so moved by the repentance of Judah, how much more is God moved when he sees his children repenting and confessing their sins to one another? When we sin against God, he awakens our conscience, he disturbs our peace, he moves us towards repentance. And when we earnestly and honestly repent and throw ourselves before God, there is no doubt that the Father weeps and longs to be reconciled with us. We can see this in the moments when Jesus himself weeps in the New Testament. Near the end of his earthly life in Luke chapter 19, Jesus weeps over the sin of Jerusalem because he knows the second he comes in, he will be rejected. In John chapter 11, Jesus weeps as he approaches Lazarus's tomb because he sees the painful consequence that sin has had on the world and the broken relationships that have followed. Lastly, in Hebrews chapter 5, we're reminded of Jesus' tears and prayers of deliverance because he knows he's going towards the cross. But Jesus, who comes from the line of Judah, does a greater action of reconciliation. See, God's providence continues far beyond the life and story of Joseph. Because just as Judah was willing to give up his life for Benjamin, so too was Jesus who came to earth to give up his life on the cross so that he can open up to us the way of reconciliation to any and all who call upon his name. Christ, who is our mediator and great high priest, offers us eternal life. He, much more so than Joseph, is deeply and intimately moved when we confess and repent. I myself, on occasion, have often struggled in the past with coming to the altar on Sunday mornings with a mix of emotions. I will feel guilt, shame, sorrow. On a particularly bad day, I might even feel hopeless. After a week since last being told to go in peace to love and serve the Lord, I walk back into the house of God to kneel at his cross And to lay down the same sins that I brought the week before. But then, afresh and anew, as if a boulder has been lifted off of my chest, I hear the words of life from the Lord, that my sins are forgiven. And I can't help but think of the face of Jesus as he hears my plea for forgiveness. It's not a wrathful frown. It's not a pan-faced indifference. It's a face of joy and tears of a father welcoming home his prodigal son. Jesus says in his parable of the lost sheep, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Joseph tear, Joseph's tears in this tender moment with Judah and his brothers reminds us that when Adam and Eve sinned, and when we sin. God did not decide to leave us in our death that we deserved. He seeks us out. He calls us back to him. He awakens our conscience. No matter how bad our week has been, God is always eager to hear our prayers of repentance and lovingly and tearfully ready to reveal himself and to forgive us. So how goes it with your soul? How are you confessing your sins to God and to one another? When we come to confess our sins together in a moment, are you truly offering a genuine apology to the Lord? When you leave here today, how will, you live, how will you show true repentance in the way you live your life as a disciple of the Lord? And how do you see God revealing himself in response to all of this? Because he is. Take comfort in the word, for in it we hear the assured promises of the Lord. Take comfort in the absolution that Jean pronounces over us because it's by the authority of the living Christ that we know these words are true. Take comfort in the bread and wine of communion as it imparts us the grace of God to live a life reconciled to him. In these, we can truly go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Amen. In response, let us stand and affirm our faith in the words of the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is, visible and invisible. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten.